What's up, my friends? You guys know me. I'm Beto Gudiño, and I bring you top God thinkers to explore life's biggest questions through the lens of belief. And because you can never trust what's on the internet, we make it more complicated by splitting it into five emojis that range from blasphemous to divine. So, did you know the Arctic is farting methane gases? Well, it's time to find out what's going on today. We're going to save the Earth. We're going to be talking with Katie Walter Anthony. So, Katie, welcome to Christian Podcast. How are you doing today? Hello, how are you? This one I'm going to do at the beginning. First, I want to get to know you a little bit. So, would you mind telling me a little bit of who you are and what you do? Sure. I am a scientist and a wife and a mother. Um, I have two boys and we homeschool them and involve them a lot in our life, um, both in the scientific research I do and my husband is a farmer. So we are, are we travel a lot between Alaska and Siberia. We have, or sorry, I used to travel a lot between Alaska and Siberia. Now we travel between our farm in Minnesota and our Arctic research sites in Alaska. Um, and I try to spend as much time outdoors as possible and I read my Bible every day. You what was the last one you said? I said and I read my Bible every day. You read Almost. your Okay. Love it. Okay. So we're out for a good conversation today. So this is what I'm going to do at the beginning of the show. I have your book right here in my hands called Chasing Lakes: Love, Science and the Secrets of the Arctic. Okay? So what we're going to do is we're going to do an emoji reaction to the book and then we're just gonna find out how do you react to my reaction to the book <laughs> so are you up for that <laughs> sure <laughs> okay here we go so, emoji tombola okay the emoji tombola is running and it's a divine emoji reaction divine emoji reaction coming back to faith and saving the planet That's my takeaway, but let's go back to Katie. How do you feel about getting the divine emoji reaction to the book? Well, it makes me wonder how the whole thing actually works. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> okay, I love that. All right, Katie. Well, I mean, I was reading your book and it's an epic story. I think you have an amazing journey. And I love that you said you introduced yourself as a scientist. So. I'm not a scientist, so I don't know a whole lot about what's going on in the Arctic. I've never been to the Arctic, so I'm super curious to know a little bit more about that. Um, but I mean, even the picture of it, right? This is super exciting to see. I mean, I don't know if it's you right here on the picture, but I imagine it's you exploring in the Arctic. Yeah. So I have like three questions that are hailing from my own kids that I thought, okay, This is and this is going to be a little bit of the topic I want to discuss today, which is kind of like when we are little and we're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right. And I feel like you have a lot of that in this book and in your own story that I want to inspire even even families that will be listening or kids in the future that 
they can be inspired to pursue their dreams and goals and passions in life. But we'll start with kids' questions. So are you up for that? Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll make it fun and easy going at the beginning. So here we go. Um, what is the deepest snow you've ever seen? Oh, the deepest snow I've ever seen. It was actually not in the Arctic. It was in the Sierra Nevada mountains. Um, I think where there a lot of, because it snows so much, the roofs, the roofs are very steep so that the snow will fall off and the roofs won't cave in. So I remember as a child seeing that there people actually had to dig a tunnel to get out their front door. Um, that said, I have also lived in a fishing village on the, on the coast of Alaska And there it snowed close to five feet in one night. So that was very dramatic. Mm. And the next day, then it started raining. And so all of this many feet of snow started moving and gliding downhill like a 7-Eleven Slurpee back into the ocean. Um, so that was the water cycle in its dynamic. Wow. <laughs> okay. So you say about five feet? Uh, I would say five feet sort of in one, one big snowfall event. Wow. But I never, I didn't measure it in the Sierra Nevada mountains. I just yeah. recognized for people to get in and out of their doors, they had to actually shovel tunnels wow. after a big snowstorm. So that was probably the thickest, but I wasn't a scientist at the time. Ah. Uh, actually, it was all relative. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Love it. Okay. What is your favorite thing that you've seen in your lifetime? My baby born, I would wow. say. Okay, that's beautiful. Without, I mean, you have two kids, right? I have two sons. Two yep. sons. So, but that first one, the first time, it's it's always a miracle. But that first time was mm. special. I love it. Yeah, I have three kids, and for sure, like I can go back to my the first day right there in the in the hospital. It's epic. I even brought my guitar out, and I was singing a few songs. <laughs> Not as the baby nice. was popping out. Okay, um, one more. <laughs> What was the highest and the lowest temperature you've ever been in? Well, the highest was probably, well, these are going to be different units um, because of where I was. The highest was in probably Nevada, where my relative, my family lives, my extended relatives. Uh, and it was maybe 110, 115. And then the coldest I've been in is somewhere between minus 50 and minus 60. And that was in Fairbanks, Alaska. Wow. So that's uh, Fahrenheit? Well, once you get down about minus 40, Celsius and Fahrenheit are similar to each other. Oh, wow. Okay. When you go more negative, I, I don't remember which one. But once you get to minus 40, it's all pretty cold. Super cold. Okay. Yeah. That's Celsius. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds pretty bad. Okay. Uh, what would be, this is just my question, you know, out of curiosity, like what is the, the, the element, like if you bring an element into that type of weather, would it freeze automatically? The, like, is that real? Would that be like in the movies you see, you know, that sometimes you bring something out into the super cold and it's like instantly freeze or frozen. Is that true or no? I mean, you hear of people throwing hot water in the air and it turns to ice before it falls. I've actually never done that experiment. Oh, um, that would be a great YouTube I video. Say, I wouldn't say instantly, but pretty fast. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Katie, thank you so much. That's amazing. And, you know, as I was reading your book, 
I think there's a passion that you have for lakes, for sure, right? I mean, that's chasing lakes, but also almost like an awareness and uh, uh, like a spiritual awakening that you've had in your own story. So I would love to dig in a little bit on, on both elements, you know, on the, the scientific side of your pursuit as a, you know, as a academic person who who loves and had a passion for a specific subject and you pursued your you know your career in that but also you know the the element of you that brought you back to god you know that at that at the time in your life you maybe were an atheist and things like that so i, I feel like those two topics are like so relevant and i don't know if if there's a way to tackle both of them at the same time uh, as we kind of like talk about your journey or if you feel like oh i want to talk about one first and then the other first or you think they're connected what what would you say well i think they're connected by truth in that there yes for a long period of time i was living as if there was no god um an atheist however you want to call it but And as I pursued science in that time, I felt that I, uh, something in me was lacking. So I, I loved the under, uncovering, and I still do, the mysteries of Earth and how it works. I, I study methane gas bubbles in lakes, and I just wish I had your glasses <laughs> or some <laughs> sort of that would help me to look down into the sediments and see exactly where these bubbles are coming from. Mm. I can measure things. Um, and I can increase my knowledge and maybe teach other people some things from my measurements, but my knowledge is still imperfect. Mm. So idea, but yet, even though I don't understand it in full, I believe that truth still exists. God still knows what's going on in those sediments, even if I don't. Mm. Um, so I think both the spiritual side of me, as well as the scientific side of me, both desire to know more, uh, okay. and, to truth and a lot of times that means laying down your own ego wow so. Oof. laying down your own ego i love that and the pursuit of truth okay so let's start right there the pursuit of truth i think that's that's going to be kind of like the chasing lakes and chasing relationships in your own story so let's go back to that question that kids are asked when they are little you know because i i even you know i grew up in mexico and i remember like being in elementary years elementary school And being asked that question, and I always would say, you know, I want to be an astronaut or I want to be you know, a firefighter. Those are like the typical, right? I never said a doctor or anything like that. But I think astronaut was for me like, that's what I want to do, you know? So now I look at people like Elon Musk. I'm like, oh, okay, he's, he's living my dream, right, in a sense. But, uh, okay, so let's go back to when you were younger, you know, what inspired you about science and about maybe the world and the natural world? that as a little girl, you said, I wish when I'm older, I can be a scientist in this area. Like, how was that? Like, if can you bring us back to your childhood uh, passion? Sure, yeah. Well, I, my childhood, I'm the oldest of four girls and my parents married young and we moved a lot. We lived in, on average, a different home more than once a year. So it was an unstable childhood. We were very poor, we lived in a trailer, an orphanage building, back bedrooms of other people's houses. My parents were married and divorced from each other twice. And I, when, for me, an escape was nature, getting out to lakes, getting in mountains. Um, I just felt a lot of peace there. 
sort of an escape from maybe the pains and anxieties of what a lot of kids experience. Um, I think it was just spending time in nature, hiking with my father and grandfather, where I started, if, the more you spend time with a person or an environment, you can't help but develop a relationship. And in that, you want to know this thing more. And so I, I was looking at the plants and the rocks and the animals, and my dad would ask me questions, or they, they, I started to ask my own. So I think just spending time there is where it was born. And then there was a sort of ecstasy associated with escaping cities and being out in nature. And so I really wanted that in my future. And um, I remember asking my dad if, can I just stay at this lake up in the mountains and be here forever and maybe do it as a career? And he said, don't turn what you love into a career because it'll take the enjoyment out of it. And I almost listened to that. And wow. I, <laughs> I thought maybe I'll become a doctor because they earn a lot of money and I really wanted to get out of poverty. Um, but as I grew older, you, you, you also have to really learn who you are. And along the way, I decided, you know, money is not really what I want to go after. I, I want to go after a, a place I enjoy. And that turned out to be lakes. It turned out to be the wilderness. And so I wanted to be an explorer that was both escaping, <laughs> but being in that, um, that serenity of the beautiful wilderness and nature. And then I got that part way along and that wasn't enough. So I needed to, that's when I really started um, becoming more of a scientist, learning what are, why do these lakes matter? I'm sure I can be here. I could paint them. I could just enjoy their presence, but there was, that wasn't enough too. I needed to find out why are they important? What's going on with them? How do they relate to the rest of the earth? And that's when I started doing research, making measurements, asking questions, finding out there's so much we don't know. Mm -hmm. Wow, that, that is epic. And so let's pair that a little bit with, you know, you were on a search and, you know, I was reading that you were in Russia and then you, you had like a teen love. And so, I mean, the, the story is epic. You know, it's so interesting. But uh, as it relates to maybe the, the, the getting away from God or the running away from God part, Uh, there's a phrase in the book that you said that your dad mentioned and you just mentioned your dad, you know, kind of like um, helping you discover nature. But on the other end, almost like like, well, this is the phrase he used. He said, girls, Christianity is a fairy tale. And, you know, so I think after that, it was almost like you started turning your back on God and saying, okay, you know, can can I have like my own experience in this life? And. So how was that, you know, like that um, maybe influence from your dad have a say in how you ended up behaving, you know, for maybe for a season of your life, maybe your teen years, your younger years? Um, yeah. So tell me a little bit about that, that losing your faith as, uh, as you were growing up. Yeah, I think our parents can have a, they have a huge impact on us and what we think. And especially our fathers, if we respect them, uh, we, we listen to what they say. So having, having my father tell me that Christianity was a fairy tale and ridicule the idea that I would believe in it, uh, it raised a lot of doubts in my mind. And you can't feel and touch and see God. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You're believing in this thing. And we, we live in a, a world that increasingly um, looks down on faith and puts things like science or things we can observe more on a pedestal. 
So I would say the world was against me having faith. My own father was against me having faith. I didn't know. I didn't know what was right or true. And I got tired of that. I got tired of the ambiguity and the uncertainty and the doubt. And so I wasn't a scientist yet, but I think naturally I said, well, I'm going to do an experiment. I am going to live like there's no God and tried to do that for a long time um, and got into trouble. I got into trouble that hurt me and hurt other people and it did not leave me a lot of peace. So even as I started to grow scientifically and was having um, successes that I would have dreamed about as a young person having, they were taking place. Um, I was discovering things in science, getting recognized for it. I, I had wonderful friendships, um, but none of those filled something in my heart. And it was this desire to, to really truly be loved. And there was a time I was... I lived in a cabin alone in Alaska, and there was a time when, you know, I just started had been reading my Bible, and I'd go to church sometimes, but not stand in the back and leave before it was over because I didn't want anyone to talk to me or <laughs> try and keep me there or anything like that. But God slow, slowly started really revealing himself and told me that he loved me and in a way that I understood I'd never known that before. And that really filled up a hole in my life that gave me peace so that I, um, I wasn't looking for that anywhere else in the world. And that, I think that freed me. I was able then to enjoy the science I was doing, enjoy my father, appreciate him and his shortcomings, as well as all the other relationships I was in. So I think finding God that way filled up something that was missing and freed me to go forward whole. Wow. Okay. So you were saying, that you got into trouble in those times, you know? So if I if I kind of pair that a little bit with what you said at the beginning, that the, the difference in your discovery is truth. Um, so what what were some of the elements that were untrue in your life that, you know, caused trouble? Can you pinpoint to you know, a few of them? Well, I mean, the number, the number one thing is that I, I'd moved out of home when I was 13. And then went off to Russia, which was just freshly broken up Soviet Union in 1992. Um, and I, I, I come from a very poor background. So I earned money and I saved every bit of it and I was afraid to spend any. And I didn't know where my next underwear or pair of shoes was ever going to come from. So I was scared, I would say, to survive. I felt like it was somewhat upon me to survive in this world. And I learned that I could... Um, that I needed other people to help me. And so I, I would say I got into manipulative relationships. Um, I was, I had never developed fully emotionally. So I didn't have a healthy sense of self. And I also didn't um, necessarily treat other, I, tr I treated other people wrong in the relationships I was in. Mm, okay. Okay. I didn't get involved with drugs and alcohol, you know, experiment a little bit with that. Like most people do, but Um, it was more just being self-centered um, and I could justify it as a need to survive, but mm. it, that was wrong. Wow. Okay. That, that is epic because I feel like at the end, you know, I, I want to talk about the, the like the family relationship you have now, but anyways, we'll discover that. Uh, so let's, let's talk about um, maybe the influential people 
that were around you. So you're, I mean, you're a scientist. And when I think of science right now, like you were saying, you know, it's, it's almost like, I guess the question would be, how do you leave out the tension between people who pursue science, but without faith and maybe even cling to science as a way to reject faith And on the opposite end, I mean, people who pursue science and pursue God and see God even in the natural world. So how, I mean, how have people influenced that? I think in the book you talk about a little bit about uh, you no know, professors that said, you know, I'm an atheist and professors that said, no, I'm a believer. So how does that play a role in shaping your faith as you're growing up too? you know, in, in, in becoming a scientist? Well, I was... As I was getting my graduate degree, that was where I, especially my, my PhD, not during my master's, but that was where I started to let God back in. And I wanted more than anything to be a successful scientist. And I was worried because I, I, there weren't very many examples of, of believers or Christians who were scientists. I would say the vast majority were not, at least as far as I knew. Mm. Um, so I was concerned that I couldn't have both. Um, But I guess because that hole in me had been filled up by God, I also couldn't turn my back on that. And that's where I was saying, who am I serving? Am I serving myself in my career or am I serving truth? And to answer truth, I said, then I'm going to put whatever that risks. So for many years, it kind of depends on what you study. I study methane bubbles and lakes and permafrost thaw. There's not a lot of conflict with God there. I'm not, I'm not studying the evolution of the, like where the earth came from or the evolution of life. And I think that that would be more challenging. Um, I'd have to take on <laughs> some of, some of these questions that no one has answers to. We might think we do, but no one does. Um, so I, you know, my faith initially was in parallel to my scientific pursuit. Um, and there were There were a few people along the way. I, I didn't actually ever really know them or have in-depth conversations with them that were scientists and people of faith. But just knowing that they existed for me was helpful to, to know, well, maybe that can exist in me too. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. So people, may, yeah, maybe people that, um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I almost feel like it's, there's an element of maybe even social contagion when it comes to belief. Right. And for the good or for the bad, like, you no, know, the more people that don't believe, the more even it feels like we're in a society that's desperate, that it's lacking, that it's like chasing after the wind. And it, and the opposite happens too. you know, the more you see hope, the more you witness people who you know, offer you a smile when their circumstances are hard and you realize, okay, how how can they do that? And you realize, well, there's something deeper. There's a faith element And that's also actually you just you just hit on something that huh. I saw, I know that in Russia. Um, so in 1992, when when I was living in southern Russia, almost everybody I came across for a long time, life was hard. They were standing in line for food. Their money was worth less and less every day. Crime was rampant. They were not happy. You did not see smiles on people's faces. They outwardly showed misery. And then I saw. A, a group of people that were different. They were smiling. Their faces were bright. They didn't have all their teeth and they weren't wealthy, but they had something different. And that was when I, I actually asked them, what is this? And, and they were, I think, Baptist Christians or something. Wow. <laughs> um, and I said, wow, that doesn't look like Christianity I'd seen in the United States. So they had something in them that was glowing. And wow. I never forgot. That. 
What what do you think was the I mean if that was striking to you what do you think was what you were witnessing in in America that you that you were able to say okay that's not at all what we're living here in America um I mean were there like a few elements well, that you I, Yeah I don't want to judge other people <laughs> that 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 you know, if I shared my honest opinion, it would come across as judgment, but I don't think we've endured hardships. Mm. People that call themselves Christians in our country. So, so, so none of us have endured the type of hardships that puts our faith to the test. And, you know, the, the more sacrifice you make for something, whether it's your child or whatever it is you're serving, the more you care and love that and the more life it takes on. So I, I think that the Russians, um, Maybe it was the contrast between the darkness of their surroundings and their environment and then the light of, of their faith. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's epic. Okay, so th this is why I feel like your story is so interesting because as you are exploring the Arctic, you're exploring, like pursuing lakes, like you are finding out about methane gases, you're also discovering your own journey of faith. So I feel like you cannot separate one from the other. Uh, so... Can you tell me a little bit about the, the, so I feel like you are trying to save the world, right? As a little girl, maybe, well, you're trying to discover something that is helpful for humanity, right? I think in your research, you know, becoming a PhD, like pursuing a career, very specific, really your, your passion, you know, like people who become doctors is because they want to save lives, right? Uh, I don't know, Elon Musk, he wants to explore Mars, right? So as I think of that, it's always because there's a there's a desire to do good. There's a desire to almost like pass on a legacy to humanity. But it almost seems like the more you were trying to pursue that, uh, the more you were, like you said, you know, maybe becoming self-centered. You even said like you started to become like Babylon. Like, could you explain a little bit like what, What does Babylon have to do with becoming like self-centered or egotistical? Well, Babylon is was a city and also symbolic in the Bible of um, this beautiful woman who got everything she wanted and was in command and just success in, as the world sees it. Um, not that I was claiming to be beautiful or the most successful, but compared to where I had come from, that was the ladder that I was climbing. And I was convicted that that is wrong and that I needed humility. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, when you eat healthy food, you feel good. And when you eat junk food, you feel crappy. And same thing. If we think certain thoughts or we start chasing after the wrong self-centered motives, that doesn't make anybody feel good. It's a perpetuating really negative feeling. So I think I had read the Bible and was convicted that I, uh, that I was again wrong and needed to have a different attitude. And, um, okay. So if I think of, uh, you know, like the very specific pursuit of, of that passion becoming egotistical, but also, uh, like Babylon, you said, but also, In a sense, like you could have, like you said, maybe justified it by saying, well, this is a good pursuit, right? Like this is, I'm doing something good for the planet. I'm doing something good for the earth. I'm doing something good for, you know, for science and scientific knowledge. Um, so if we take a look at that, like, would you say there, there was 
necessarily like anything inherently bad about that dream or that pursuit? Well, I guess I'd have to ask myself, was I honestly trying to save the world? That's an off, that's a really big thing to claim to be trying to do. Um, and I would say something even maybe egotistical thing to claim. I wanted to, I, I wanted to study lakes because I loved being there and I wanted to understand why they were important and how the earth worked. Um, and I wanted to get a job <laughs> and make it as a scientist, make a name for myself. So those things are all natural and human, but can't carry too far, but can become self-centered. Um, along, you know, a lot of what we do as scientists to get funded, we put it in certain contexts. If I, if I were to write to the National Science Foundation and say, give me a million dollars so that I can understand better exactly the little pathways that bubbles take through, through the sediments, I wouldn't get funded. But when I can explain the importance of these bubbles in a global warming context, now it's relevant to society and, and you get funded. So mm. there's um, intrinsic curiosity of how things work, I would say, is, was, has always been the biggest driver. Mm. And part of it is I didn't understand in the beginning the big picture importance of these lakes. I believed something existed. Otherwise, why would there be so many? But it really came later when I could see the system as a whole and I could see that the Arctic was warming and more of these lakes were forming and where they were, they were belching out this methane gas. And then that logically you start to understand, wow, more melt warming and melting of the Arctic leads to more methane gas, which leads to more warming. And you have this positive feedback cycle that uh, was, was an interesting discovery and that methane, when it goes in the atmosphere, it goes around the whole world. So it does affect all people. Mm -hmm. Wow. It, yeah, it truly does. And it's so interesting because I think this is where we get maybe into even like the politics of, you know, climate change and all of that. And I was thinking of this phrase. I don't know if you may agree or may disagree, but what do you think of this? Money follows fear. Well, probably so. I, um, I really don't like agenda driven science, but I think that there's something in that I've noticed in the, in the science I do many times, what we have discovered is something related to climate warming, but we've also discovered things related to climate cooling. So if one of these lakes sits out there on the landscape long enough, it switches from causing climate warming to actually taking on a good role and soaking carbon up out of the atmosphere and, and leading to climate cooling. Um, so the media and political response to those scientific findings has been very different. The global warming part gets all kinds of attention and the climate cooling part a lot less. And so I find that um, that's to me frustrating because as a scientist, I don't want to only try and discover things that I know are going to feed people's fears and follow a certain political agenda. I, I want to understand really how the whole system works. And I think we owe that to people in the world. If we're going to do science is to pursue the truth. Wow. Okay. That's so lovable of you. And I love your honesty in saying that, you know, even saying, you know, there's, there's a whole other side that people don't pay much attention to because maybe it's, it's not as fearful, right. As like, maybe apocalyptic as the other side. But uh, I appreciate that, you know, you saying that coming from an expert, I would say, in the topic. That's super helpful. And 
Okay, so what would you say? I mean, let's dig in a little bit into into this because I mean, I'm unfamiliar with the Arctic. I've never been there, <laughs> but what would you say is the uh, like the most imminent threat to methane gases bursting out in lakes in the Arctic in our planet? Well, it really is warming. Um, so. The Earth is warming and the Arctic is warming three times faster. And when it does, if you can imagine, like if you had a, a sharp stick or a needle or a knife and you stuck it into the ground, if you were not in the Arctic, it would go as far as you can push it. But in the Arctic, it doesn't go very far before it hits something really hard. And that hard thing is frozen soil, permafrost. And in the frozen soil, there's massive blocks of ice. So as the Arctic is warming, that ground is thawing out the ice is melting and the ground collapses you get these wet mucky sinkholes and then that's the environment where the methane is coming so uh the only way to stop that is to if we can slow climate warming otherwise it's inevitable that when you put an ice cube outside it's going to melt you increase the surrounding air temperature it causes the ice cube to melt and that's the same thing in the arctic If you increase the air temperature, the ground ice melts, the massive ice sheets melt, the glaciers melt, and then all that water goes um, into the ocean. Uh, it goes into the, it just enters the whole water cycle and changes weather patterns. Mm. So even though pe most people are far away from the Arctic, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. It ends up affecting the whole earth. That's true. So I was working in a long time ago, like 16 years ago, here in California, in a construction right next to the water, okay? And I remember as they building the wall that's next to the water, they were saying, we got to build it like three feet higher than the regular house because of the rising sea levels, right? So, I, was, I mean, back in the days, I was already curious, like, wow, this guy is building his house higher because, you no. Know, Basically, there's more water in the ocean or they're thinking in the future there's going to be. So is that necessarily bad or is, is that causing a problem in the world that, you know, rising sea levels other than you know, maybe build all your houses higher or <laughs> or is there a bigger well, problem to that? I am not an expert on all of the down the line problems that are going to come. Obviously, there's major expenses And a lot of time, major exp expenses with um, cities and islands where people live flooding and all those people have to relocate. So it's not always just building their house higher. Um, in the Arctic, there are indigenous communities that live along the coast, but because there's less sea ice protecting the waves, you get stronger storms, which is causing the, the, the coast where they live to erode. So now you have to move whole villages. So there's expense associated with that and Um, so I think that, yeah, the, these things are, we definitely need to think about them, but it's also, I think another healthy frame of mind is that the world has always been changing. We can't, we can't try to keep the earth from changing. It always has. The Arctic we have today is the product of all the changes that have happened in the past, including past warming. So what I think as humans, we have a responsibility to take care of the place we live and take care of each other. Um, and to do that, we need wisdom. And wisdom comes from data, collecting data, understanding what, <laughs> how things work so that we can make good, good management decisions. Mm -hmm. So what would be maybe like two, three um, 
like wisdom nuggets that you would say this is something we can do collectively to like for example i mean i kept referring like elon musk right so i think of oh, okay electric cars are great because they don't you know produce carbon in the in the in our in our air but at the same time now they're saying yeah but they're producing like all these cells that you know have all kinds of chemicals and whatnot and at the end they're going to end up wasting our land and this and that so I mean, is that a solution that you see or do you feel like there's there's other ways in which we collectively can say this is how we can care for our planet? Well, it seems like we've become such a consumer society and we generate so much garbage that wasn't even there 50 years ago. Mm. Um, so actually finding pristine nature on the earth, on the planet is hard now. Wow. So I would trying to simplify our life, use less resources, um, rather than signing up for organizations that take you place, fill up your schedule so that you're stressed out, cut more of that out, spend time with your children, spend time with your neighbors, take walks, redevelop relationships with people and with nature. Even if you live in a city, there are, there are still natural things that you can go out and observe every day and see the beauty in it. So I think slowing down, simplifying, um, using less resources and taking time to care for people and any of the resources that you have decisions about um, could go a long way. And that's individuals taking responsibility, not necessarily from the top down being told what to do. Mm. Wow, that's so helpful. And I, I love that. And would you say, uh, you know, doing things like, I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of like curious. Would you say things like recycling, you know, using, not using straws in your drinks? Like, is that really helpful, do you think? Or, or uh, I mean, does that have <laughs> well, anything you, to you do? Know, <laughs> you and I, in some ways, know as much as each other about the solutions to these things. Um, but yeah, the plastic bags, the plastic bottles. <laughs> is So drink water from your faucet instead of going and buying all this bottles that get produced in the millions every day and end up in the ocean. Um, I think just go back, make decisions to as much as you can use less manufactured resources. Mm, okay. I love that less manufactured resources. And I witnessed that here in California. I mean, I'm right by the ocean and when we go and then I see trash, it saddens me. Sometimes I pick it up, but sometimes there's so much that I'm like, okay, this is going to end up in the ocean. This is this is plastic, right? And I feel like this is bad. And I think that's, a, I mean, something as simple as next time I come, instead of bringing my, my water bottle, like plastic water bottle that I bought for a dollar, I'm just going to bring a jug that I can refill in my house. So something simple like that, yes. right? Yes, I, I think things like that is, is great. Um, you know, there is a place for science and technology. We've, we've created all this garbage. Is recycling the solution? My understanding is that a lot of what goes into the recycling actually gets shipped to China and incinerated because our EPA doesn't allow us to burn it in our country because it creates bad air, but yet we ship it off to China. So a lot of people think they're recycling, but it's act, the fate of it is not recycling. It's the fate of it is to go into an incinerator in China, <laughs> and then it wow. comes back in the atmosphere to us. Wow. So. I think any kind of research we can do to improve our ability to recycle, but then also someone else is getting rich by the convenience of producing plastic and getting people addicted to it. So if there's ways that we can take the bottle and reuse it, as you said, to drink your water, um, 
those sorts of decisions, not give not give uh, economic incentive to people to keep hurting the planet. Wow. Looking for alternative energy. Um, You know, there's all kinds of things that we could do at larger scales too. Yes. Uh, That's so helpful. So I think of uh, even explaining to my kids, I love what you just said. You know, we are addicted to plastic. I mean, what a better way to put it. That's so true. And that almost like, oh, I feel like I resonate with that. And I feel like, okay, if I'm aware that I'm addicted to plastic, then I can have a better understanding of how I'm uh, interacting myself with stuff, right? With like plastics and stuff and, and be conscious. I mean, just to be aware and be conscious, I think it's helpful to start reducing our consumption of of those things, right? And then hopefully change like corporately um, and corporate policies or whatever. I think that would be awesome. Okay, so all of that is amazing. All of that, you know, like the science behind helping our planet, the science behind caring collectively. And let's bring it down to like your personal story. Okay, because you're traveling the world, you're like in Russia, you're like doing these experiments. And then, you know, you had your teenage love. I think his name was Valera, right? Yep. Uh, Yep. Valera. And then, so it seems like you had a passion to say, I want to form a family as one of your goals in life too. You know, so you have this research passion, but you also have like, I want to become a a mother one day, maybe, right? Like a, a wife. Um, so that's a dream too that I feel like you had like so entangled with the chasing lakes. And eventually I feel like you were you were almost like wondering, okay, will I ever meet the guy that you know I can marry and be you know spend my the rest of my life? So tell me a little bit little bit about how you met Peter and how that almost like deviated you from your your chasing lake passion and then you started on, on a complete like different type of passion but also your own passion <laughs> you know like becoming a, a yeah. mom and a wife well i met peter right after i got my dream job which is a, a professorship and so right as i was entering that new job um i had you know i'd been single for a while and almost did you know earlier i had wanted to get married but at this point my career was so exciting that it, looking for a husband was not at the top of my list and then i walked into a wedding that i i was crashing the wedding and the best man caught my eye and it wow. turned out that i sat by him at the dinner and um they say you'll know when you meet the one and i that was i i knew um i just yeah i had a sense and the more he asked me questions and the more I learned about him, I realized I would be foolish to, um, to let my weaknesses and ways that I stumble get in the way of, of taking this somewhere. For me, one of the biggest stumbling blocks was that he was and still is a Minnesota farmer. And he's the only child of, of a large family farm. So here I was in the Arctic, completely committed to it, loving Russia, loving the whole Arctic and never wanting to leave. And then I meet a man who a farmer can't just leave his farm. <laughs> so there was an apparent conflict there um, that for a long time, I didn't know how to resolve. And we ended up getting married and 
splitting our time back and forth, but it's always been a concern in my mind. For many years, it was a concern in my mind that I was going to have to give up science and be stuck on this farm in Minnesota. It's a beautiful farm. It's absolutely beautiful, but I have never been chained to one place on earth. I've always had the freedom to roam. Um, so that sounded like prison in a way, <clears throat> but I really, and so I, and I got, I built my own bars of resentment and bitterness and fear of being stuck in this place um, that was making me unhappy and him unhappy. And I could see that he and his parents loved that farm and they wanted me to, but I was not going to let myself because I hadn't chosen to be there. Um, and so what over time, that was a place where God had to really soften me and <laughs> let me learn to trust him, that he brought Peter into my life. And Peter is an amazing man. I can't imagine um, ever being happier and more in awe and respect of the husband that I married. Um, Peter is just fantastic. But he came with his farm in Minnesota. Um, so God really had to, again, just make me trust him there. He had me here for a reason. And I think a big part of it was to lay down my will that I was going to be the one that defined what made me happy. Um, because we all have a choice. We can be, we can choose to be unhappy or not. And so it was laying down my pride um, and saying, all right, I am willing to let joy in. That's a joy that's not from me. I didn't come up with it. I didn't choose it. And I'm going to lay down my resentment. And um, when that finally happened, it's again, it's amazing. I was free. Those prison bars were gone <laughs> and I can enjoy um, the Minnesota farm. And luckily we still go now as a family to Alaska. So I haven't been completely stuck in one spot forever. Yeah. It happens. I know I can't resent it because whenever we're bitter resentment, we're putting our own bars up. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's so helpful because a lot of people, I feel like they have their their own passion, their own dreams, their own goals. And if I'm thinking, you know, something I want to pass on to my kids is, yes, pursue your dreams. And if you want to be an astronaut, you can. Uh, but also at the same time, there's there's going to be almost like a realization of, uh, do you want to enjoy the relationships that are right next to you, right? And I don't know if you've seen this movie, but there's a movie called Ad Astra with Brad Pitt. And I love the movie. I was watching it with my kids. And it's, I mean, it's an old movie, so I'm not spoiling anything. But uh, it's a movie in which the son is pursuing his father, who's far off in the galaxy trying to find a new planet or something. And then the son finally catches up to him and then realizes, wow, my, my dad is like pursuing this like this uh, dream outside in, in another galaxy when he could have had me and the most like important relationship all along. Right. So it was, yes. almost, it's a, it's a brokenness, but I, I also feel like that happens to a lot of people, you know? So I want to give yes. like, props to you and in your journey of realizing that God was doing something in your own heart to. Yes. You, you said that so well, we, we do have an opportunity. We don't have to always chase lakes or chase something else. We, there are things, people, and things right there with us that we can, that those can be beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it, you, you compare it, it takes to, humility. <laughs> it does. So you compare that to a thermostat lake. You said you were becoming like a, <laughs> like how, what is a thermostat lake? Well, it's a thermal karst lake and a thermal karst lake is a lake that is there because the ground ice melted. There used to be a block of ice in the ground. 
the ice melted, the ground sunk, and then it filled with water. And early on when this lake forms, it's greedy. And it, wa- it holds heat and it wants to thaw and eat more of the ground around it. It belches out this methane gas. And so that's the picture of me or a person that's in that self-centered, very often when we're young, stage of life, mm. <laughs> um, we can do a lot of damage. And, but we have so much energy and force. And then as a, as a thermocarst lake gets older, it's, it, it uses up all of its permafrost carbon. So it, it's no longer belching out methane gas. And instead, it becomes a place where plants grow and carbon atmosphere can get soaked up like a sponge into the bottom of this lake and it, it grows thick peats. And it, its impact on the environment is good because it's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere instead of releasing it. Um, and so, you know, people also can change. We might start out on a self-seeking negative trajectory where we're hurting people and, and the environment, but we can switch. It's, it's not too late to change and, and do good. Mm-hmm. So was there a specific circumstance that you think helped you transition from pride to humility? You know, I was, I recognized that I didn't have joy in my pride. Um, and again, the Bible for me is always this mirror where it points out <laughs> the, what's wrong with me. Um, and that God offers a different solution uh, in that required faith. But that was it. It was recognizing the truth and then not saying no to it and being courageous enough to not see how I could possibly be joyful by laying down my pride, but just trying it and it worked. Wow. That's so beautiful. And I can't help but think of the story of Naaman in the Bible, as you've referred to the Bible a lot. And <laughs> Naaman is a person who had to get rid of pride by going into the water and not just one or two or three or four times, but seven times. And I almost feel like, you know, if seven is the perfect number, it's, it's almost like this sense of like, if you want to get rid of, of pride, go as many times as you need to until you remove it. And I feel like that's almost like what happened to you as you're chasing lakes. Uh, it's a little bit of that. So I have this phrase right here that you wrote and it's so beautiful. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit on, on how that touches you personally. It says home is the place where one stays to tend the gardens or landscape of relationships. Yeah, I think you actually said that. It's it's recognizing that your your children or your husband or your parent, they are like a little plant that wants to grow. And you can affect it negatively. If if we have ill feelings and a sour soul, <laughs> we're gonna hurt that thing that wants to grow next to us. Or we can stop thinking about ourselves and instead give and enable the things around us to grow and be beautiful. Mm. Um, so so that, I didn't, <laughs> don't always have to chase the lakes. I love those lakes, but there's plenty of important things to do by tending the local garden as well. Mm-hmm. If you're listening, Elon Musk, there's hope for you, man. <laughs> Anyways, this is what we're going to do, Katie. We are going to go from blasphemous to divine. So what that looks like is as we wrap up the episode, we're just going to summarize what we've talked about. So from your vantage point, if we say what would be the most blasphemous idea 
you can think of? Uh, that I'm always right. <laughs> ah, okay. I love it. Okay, so the most skeptical idea you can think of. Well, that I'm wrong, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that makes total sense. Okay, that makes total sense. All right, I love that. Let's go to inspired emoji. So, inspired emoji, uh, what gives you hope or where do you find inspiration? Well, tr that truth and love exist and that we can have those things. Wow, the truth and love exist. Love it. All right, let's move on to holy. What is the holiest idea you can think of? <laughs> uh, the opposite of my own sinful self. Or the, so holy is without anything wrong, it's pure. And it's the opposite of what I often am, which is not <laughs> that. <laughs> okay, love. And finally, the most divine idea you can think of. Well, I guess that um, that God loves us so much that he laid his own life down to save ours. Wow. There you have it, my friends. What an amazing time with Katie chasing lakes, love, science, and the secrets of the Arctic. So, Katie, where do you want to point people to to find out more about maybe your work or your writing or even to find this book? Well, the book is being published by HarperCollins, and uh, in the back of the book, there's if you want to read the actual science and the nitty-gritty of that, then there's lots of references to original work. But this is more just a, a personal memoir story, so it's in common language. Love it. All right, Katie, thank you so much for being on the show. My friends, go to christianpodcast.com to choose your own emoji. Every episode has five emojis you get to choose from. So let us know what you think. Do you disagree with us? Go and do a blasphemous emoji. Do you like what we said? Give us an inspired emoji. Do you love what we said? Give us a divine emoji. All right. So thank you so much, Katie. I'll see you guys on the next one. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.